0: From News Talk 580-1059-KMJ, this is the MADI Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler.
1: Education is the gateway to economic and social success. Today we'll take a comprehensive look at education from kindergarten through college in California and the Valley. How do our students compare? We'll ask an expert in educational policy. Julian LaFortune with the Public Policy Institute of California.
2: BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. BNSF, the engine that connects us. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world.
1: As well as the Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Dewey Square Group, Comcast Financial Agency, Nasman LLP, Sagasser Watkins and Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital.
2: From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: California has adopted significant reforms in K-12 education over the past decade with the expectation that student performance is going to improve as well. Our guest is Julian LaFortune, who is a, who's with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute, who recently authored a study entitled Achievement in California's Public Schools, What Do Test Scores Tell Us? So welcome to the Report. Thank you for having me, Mark. So uh, let's talk first about the reforms to make sure we understand what they are. So in 2010, the state adopted something called the Common Core State Standards. Can you briefly explain what the Common Core Reform was all about?
0: Yes, yeah, so the Common Core Reforms are really our newest set of educational standards for the state. And they reflect a broader national push to align standards across the country And the main goal with this is to get students college and career ready for the 21st century jobs. And so these standards are really about improving the rigor of our standards, uh, focusing on more real world applications, um, really trying to up our critical thinking skills for students and you mentioned 2010 was when they were first uh, right. they were first enacted but it really wasn't until 2015 when we first started testing students on the standards it it, that it you saw districts It doesn't happen overnight. Do. Just because you adopt the standards doesn't mean, yeah, it takes a while to kind of percolate through the system and it's very different. I
1: mean their approach was on conceptual understanding, it was on problem solving skills, not rote memorization, frankly. Yeah. A, b- a big change. In 2013, there were some other things that happened. That was the big thing was local control funding formula, which basically the state adopted this uh, financial and government
0: reform, governance reforms that really gave more a th- a kind of authority, more money and more authority to local school districts. Yeah, and that's it's really just about that. It's about more money and about more authority or more freedom and flexibility in how they spend. And so this was really the one of the most fundamental reforms to our system of K through 12 finance over the past several decades. So in terms of the more money part, what that means is under LCFF, districts now have a weighted student funding formula. And so that amounts to giving more money to districts with more high need kids. The idea is that these kids are a little bit more costly to educate or they have more difficult circumstances. And so right. we want to provide additional funding to help districts out. And mean, talk
1: about high need kids, we're talking about low income English learners on foster care, foster
0: youth, and, and homeless
1: individuals. Okay. Who are also and in the past, typically. the state gave money to school districts in the past, but it came with strings attached called categorical imperatives, right? Mm-hmm. So give you money, but you have to use the money specifically for this purpose. And the big change here was here's the money. You do with it what you think is appropriate.
0: Here's extra money for these high-need students. And so a lot of times in LCFF, what we're talking about is the money aspect, but the second part getting rid of these categoricals and giving districts a lot more leeway in their spending is actually a big part of really what the reforms are all about. It's kind Um, of pushing
1: that down to the local level.
0: Yeah, and the idea is that these local districts have a good sense of what their students need and so they can respond more flexibly than, say, you know, state policymakers in Sacramento can.
1: You know, you did, you noticed in your report that the enormity of California's K-12 education system and the fact that it's highly decentralized are among the reasons why it takes time for these uh, changes to kind of take hold. Can you give our our
0: audience an idea of the size and scope we're talking about in in the state's K-12 education system? Yeah, I think it's important to think about just how large and decentralized the system is. So there's about a thousand school districts in California comprised of about 10,000 schools serving 6 million students. So say we want to change standards, like under the Common Core reforms, that amounts to changing instructional practices, materials, teacher development in hundreds of thousands of classrooms around the state. And obviously, since the system is decentralized, this takes a lot of time to actually enact locally. And so when we're thinking about what the effects of these reforms are, we kind of need to take a step back sometimes and think, you know, there's a local implementation process and it may take time for the full effects to really accumulate. You're saying
1: it's decentralized,
0: but isn't there a State Department of Education? So the state can't actually mandate these changes. The state Mm -hmm. can suggest that the local districts will enact these changes, but there really isn't an effective oversight tool. I mean, really, Forced districts to do it's this the local
1: districts. Those what is it, a, a thousand? Uh, there are a
0: thousand, thousand school a districts. A thousand, yeah, school districts that are each making
1: decisions on how to implement Common Core standards or what have you.
0: Yeah, they're each making decisions. Of course, there's state guidance and practices and funding that's attached to this, but, yeah, but by and large, the implementation process is ultimately under local control. You know, there
1: there are not everybody's supportive of this. There are some critics uh, that say that regardless, uh, California is not making sufficient progress, especially with lower performing students. What are their specific
0: complaints? So I think you know just broadly I mean the complaints are kind of all over the board but broadly the complaints are one that we're still we have still a long ways to go about half the kids in the state still aren't at grade level when it comes to the standards that we have under the new Common Core Mm -hmm. and on top of that we have these large and persistent achievement gaps that have been pretty stubborn and difficult um, to close over time and so these have persisted. There are large gaps by race and socioeconomic status, ethnicity and the fact that we haven't made sufficient progress and we're really the rate of change isn't so fast that we might see these persist for decades longer and so i think say, that's an area of concern when
1: you're seeing the achievement gaps you're talking about the difference between let's say high needs districts where they have a lot of these uh, kids that that really need help and
0: these lower needs more wealthier districts that that don't we haven't we're not closing that gap Exactly. That's fast enough. Yeah. So I mean, these gaps are large. And even when we make progress on that, I think the rate of change suggests that it might be several years or even decades um, at the current rate of change that we'd expect to see these gaps eliminated.
1: Okay. well, while everyone wants to see improved academic performance, just how long do we have to wait to see that improved academic performance? In short, um, the case when it comes to educational reform, is patience a virtue or is it an excuse? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. So how well are students performing on those standardized tests that they're taking? We're speaking with Julian LaFortion. He's with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. He recently wrote a report on that very topic.
0: Um, So let's talk a little bit about your report. First of all, what data did you look at and, and why? So we looked at two sources of data. So the first were the SBAC or the Smarter Balance Assessments. And these are what the assessments that California has that are aligned with the Common Core standards and these have been in place since twenty fifteen and they test students in grades three to eight and grade eleven and they give a very comprehensive sense of how our districts are doing and how our students are doing um, to supplement that and to try to compare over the longer term and to look at how california is doing relative to other states we also looked at what's called the NAEP or the national assessment of educational progress you gotta abbreviate these things because these, these things are so long exactly right? yeah it's a mouthful <laughs> it um, is so, so, you looked at that as well to kind of compare California students to other states. Yeah, so this is a nationally administered exam, and this allows us to compare how California is doing over time, so back several decades, it and goes to back. other states yeah, as well. Yeah, so it's an older exam, I guess. It's gone back a little bit. Yeah, little so it while. first goes back to 1990, at least oh, this, okay. this version okay. of it.
1: So, um, so how uh,
0: did you use these tests to determine how well California's K 12 education system is working? How do you. So, you we know? looked primarily at, in our report at two things. So there's first what we'll call trend or what we call trend in our report. So Mm -hmm. how are the trends in our educational progress? And what this means is, if we think of an example of third grade students, how are this year's third graders doing compared to last year's third graders and the year before? So it's comparing different sets of students, but it's kind of giving a sense of how the system is doing over time. Are third graders more prepared than they had been in the past and so forth? Um, Of course, that's not the same set of students. You also might be interested in how students are progressing as they go through school. And so what we looked at is commonly referred to as growth. And so that's a second measure. And we looked at this on the SBAC tests. And what this is basically asking is, instead of comparing this year's third graders to last year's third graders, what we did is compared, you know, say, this year's fourth graders to how they did last year in third grade. How much did they grow? Uh, How much did they improve? Was that improvement more or less than what we expect, given the standards, and given what we think students should be learning um, and improving upon grade to grade? So did you find performance improvement? So we did. So when we looked at the trends, so just kind of how students at a given level are performing over time, what we found was actually pretty encouraging. So California has made, at least over the last four years, pretty broad progress um, in math and reading or in English. Uh, So I think in 2015, for example, about 40% of third graders were proficient or at grade level in, in math and in English, a little bit less than that. Um, And that grew actually to almost 50% over the last four years. And so, you know, the rate of change is small. It's a couple percentage points per year, but that represents real progress. If you think about adding this up over time, that's hundreds of thousands of students in such a large system who are now at grade level that weren't before. That's great. Um, When we looked at at the grade to grade growth, it was more of a mixed bag. So in English, we found that grade to grade growth was actually pretty positive. So students, if anything, are actually catching up. So students that may have been behind in third grade by the time they're in sixth grade, they've caught up and they're now again at grade level, um, and so that was a pretty robust and positive finding. On the flip side, math was a little bit less rosy. So what we found in math is that students really aren't keeping up with the grade to grade progression as much as we'd like or as much as we'd expect by the standards. Okay. Um, and am yeah. sorry, go ahead. One, ex- one example of that is just if we look at, you know, again, this third grade cohort in 2015, I said 40% were proficient in math in, in 2015. By the time we get to 2018, that same cohort in sixth grade, only 38% are proficient. So mm. that's not a huge decline, but students are, instead of catching up, they're actually falling behind as they progress through school. And So I think that's a, an area of concern. Something you have to look at more closely, for sure. Exactly. So um,
1: so but generally, the scores seem to be improving. Why are they improving? I think some people would say, well, it's pretty simple. They're just teaching to the test.
0: Yeah. So you know, it wasn't something we looked specifically at in our report in terms of what is generating these improvements, but I think when it comes to teaching to the test although this is often a concern you might have when looking at test scores, I think we were reassured in this report that that really wasn't what was driving these effects. And and the reason I say that is when we looked at the NAEP or this other exam, we found pretty similar effects on the NAEP as well. And the NAEP is not a high stakes test. In fact, district and school levels test scores are never released to the public. So really what the public only gets is that it's a state level summary of what's going on in the state of California. And so there's no incentive for a teacher to really teach to that test. So I think it provides an additional layer of confidence that the fact that we see a similar pattern there suggests that this isn't really teaching the test, and this is some sort of real improvement that we think is. And a th- bit they don't meaningful. know that the test is going to be given necessarily. The I mean, NAEP doesn't give it to every student, right? No, so it's not every student, and it's not every school or district. So it's a sample of students throughout the state. Um, I think maybe about twenty thousand around. The state.
1: Has anything been? Have you reviewed whether the teaching methodology has changed somehow? It's gotten better. Does that have an effect? As opposed, as opposed, just say not, not teaching to the test. So is there something else going on there besides Common
0: Core or? or you know, so, you know, that's there's, something that needs to be looked at. Exactly, I think that's something that needs to be looked at. Uh, Common Core is one. I mean, what's the effect of these changes in standards? Mm-hmm. Are instructional practices getting better? I think right. another thing that's been going on is we've been increasing funding throughout this time period, mm-hmm. so we've seen large increases in funding. Some of this is due to LCFF and some is due to the improved economic situation of the state, and that may be bearing out in these scores as well. Um, again, that's just suggestive. That's not something we looked at specifically, but I think these are all areas that we can kind of probe further. You know one of the big issues I'm going to talk about this in a moment is that is the achievement gap and the question is, is it closing?
1: That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. In 2013 the state for the first time in 40 years changed the way K-12 education was being financed by California with something called the local control funding formula. The question is has this new approach of increased flexibility and funding worked? Has it narrowed the achievement gap between traditional and high-need students? We're talking with an expert in this area, Julian LaFortune, with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. So talk about the local control funding form. Fund, we talked about the fact that it was uh, given more money to high needs districts, mm-hmm. uh, more flexibility on how to spend that money to those districts. But let me kind of uh, jump to this. Has it improved academic performance, though, for high needs students? Has it closed the achievement gap?
0: So in terms of has it closed the achievement gap, the answer is no, this is still a persistent achievement gap and we haven't really made so much progress on that. But I think when we're talking about evaluating the LCFF for the local control funding formula, it's worth noting that it hasn't really been fully funded you know until just a couple years ago and so a lot of this is still a work in progress the same idea that has to percolate through the system exactly you know and if you think the mechanism of action here districts have to get this additional money they have to spend it on something a lot of what they spend it on is new staff and these new staff initially aren't maybe as effective they take time to get up to full speed okay and so I think it's only after we fully funded it and seen these kind of new staff roll through and these changes reach a sort of equilibrium that will start to see whether it's actually working as Everybody's attended.
1: focusing on English and math, so let's talk about that. What about English and math? Is, have you seen improvements in English? Is it shrinking the gap in English scores for those students?
0: So when we looked, at least in our report, when we looked at the achievement gaps in English, um, what we found is that high-need districts or low-income districts aren't really seeing much higher growth um, than low-income or high-income districts. And so what that it's means is these say. gaps are staying roughly steady as students are progressing through school. I guess the good news is it's not getting worse. So it's not getting worse but what we found in math is that it is getting worse as students progress through the grade. So this is a pattern that has existed before LCFF but continues to exist and I think that's a big worry that as students are progressing through the system these gaps if anything are either staying the same or growing.
1: Growing, um, that's a problem. If you already saw that it was a problem where it was before and it's actually getting worse, that, that's certainly a, something pretty serious. Um, so the local controlling local control funding formula has led to some big increases in funding, we talked about that, along with this increased flexibility, how to spend the money. Some have expressed concern that uh, given the underwhelming progress uh, of closing the achievement gap, that maybe this additional funding is too much being spent on
0: maybe salaries as opposed to these high-need students. What's the response? I think those are fair concerns. I think one reason for these concerns is that districts aren't required to report school-level spending or there's no systematic accounting of spending at the school level. And so what you get are you basically get that LCFF is working in the sense that it's giving districts with the most needy students more money. Mm. I think the questions that remain are how are they spending this, and are they doing it in a way that's most beneficial for these high need students? Um, I've looked at this in you know in some part in my research, um, at least in terms of salary expenditures on teachers, and what we found is that te- uh, high income schools or high-need schools generally spend a little bit more on teachers even within the same district and so that's a sign that districts are allocating some of this money to their most needy students but um, that's only part of the picture we don't have a com- comprehensive data set that can tell us what schools are spending on because it's really only reported at the district level right now.
1: Yeah, I would think without any empirical evidence that to, to, at my fingertips that a good teacher makes a huge difference in the ability of students in, in their achievement levels in a classroom so spending more money, sal- higher salaries for teachers if those teachers are good Obviously, a good thing in terms of closing that achievement gap. It seemed to make sense. Um, so I, I did note in your report that you took, you're talking about the typical high need students does get about three hundred fifty dollars more um, in all districts mm-hmm. generally, and then in high needs districts, they're getting five hundred dollars more directly targeted to those those high needs uh, students. So you would think that where the money is being allocated, it's going to improve uh, improve outcomes. Uh, so what is your overall assessment then
0: of local control funding formula and its ability to reach these high-need students? You know, I think I think it's working as intended. Um, I think the intention of LCFF is to provide more money to these high-need kids and, in the high-need districts. And so the way that it's done is by targeting need at the district level. I think where there's still room for improvement is that a lot of high-need students aren't necessarily in the most needy districts, or there are clusters of high-need schools that are in districts that are very large and don't have as high of a percentage, and so they don't get as much additional money under the formula. That's
1: that's really interesting that you say. So you you could be in a you know we're a relatively well off district, but you could have a school. In fact, I can think of some uh, locally in the valley where the district is fairly well off, but there are schools that are not well off. They're in poor areas, but they're not getting the benefit of this. So they'll get some additional funding, but some. not as much
0: as if they were in a district that had a larger share of high need students. Right. So it's
1: not quite targeted specifically to all high-need students is targeted really to districts that have a large percentage of high-need students.
0: Yeah, and the and the intention there, or the expectation is that, or it's an acknowledgment of the fact that these areas with concentrated poverty uh, might require additional funding. And so it's not just about giving more money for high-need students. It's about giving even more when there's concentration of need. Yeah, the
1: concentration of need, probably, yeah, that, that's kind of the focus. Well, that's, that's interesting. Well, up next, um, how are California students doing compared with other states? I know a lot of parents would like to know the answer to that question. That conversation, in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So how does California compare with other states when it comes to student performance? We're speaking with Julian LaFortune. He's an education expert with the Non-Parson Public Policy Institute of California. So um, you first compared California schools to students on uh, with our West Coast neighbors, Oregon and Washington. Uh, why those
0: states? So the simple reason is that those states both take the same exam, the same SBAC exam or the Smarter Balanced exam. Um, I think about a dozen other states right now take that exam as well, but Oregon and Washington are the two most similar to California.
1: Okay, well they may disagree, but
0: <laughs> whenever you go there, you're from California, right? They, they kind of know right away. Yeah.
1: Um, so when you
0: compared California to Oregon and Washington, what would you find? So we actually compare pretty favorably to them, at least when it comes to the trends and the growth that we've seen over the past four years. So in uh, Oregon and Washington in 2015, they both started out uh, with higher levels of achievement than California students, but we've closed the gap at least in third grade, which we looked at in the report, we've closed the gap entirely with Oregon. And wow. we've closed about half of the gap with Washington over the past four years. That's pretty fast to close that gap. Yeah, so the gap wasn't particularly large. I think it was about five. I'll take it, We closed close, the gap. Yeah, so we've <laughs> closed the gap. And then when it comes to the growth, we're seeing faster growth in California in both English and math um, than our you know neighbors up north are. So. What about in math, though? There, there seems to be some
1: issues w- with math. In English, they're doing pretty well, California students. But math, not so well. It sounds like uh, Oregon and Washington are doing less well. That's pretty much the way best
0: way of putting it. So we're it. catching them yeah. because we're not. It's not like we're going fast. They're just not going as fast as they were going. So we're kind of closing the gap. You that know, way. that's exactly what's going on in math. I think our results are somewhat lackluster, but Oregon and Washington are okay. in many ways doing worse than us. So
1: it's just like a race. If the other guy's slowing down, you're catching up. Um, so uh, when you compared California to other comparable states uh, using
0: the the NEEP data, uh, what did that show regarding California's changes in student achievement? So the two most similar states to California, at least demographically and and other large kind of ethnically diverse states, are Florida and Texas. So when we looked at those two states, California in many ways has been outpacing Texas, especially in English. Uh, Math, we've seen similar trends to Texas over the past decade and a half. Florida is actually one state that's seen quite robust improvement over the past 15 years Mm -hmm. um, in excess of the national average, in excess of California and Texas. So I think that's one area that we might want to look more carefully yeah. at. Is there um, any idea why that is? Why is Florida doing so well? I think there are a lot of theories out there, but there hasn't been anything, at least that I've seen, that has really nailed this question down um, with an answer that's uh, you know, at least applicable to us right. in but California. It's something we lo- looking at, for sure. I think that's definitely worth looking at yeah. more and, and taking some examples of successful policies they've had and maybe seeing if they would work here as well. Right. Um, so what about comparing California to the nation as a whole? So compared to the nation as a whole it's pretty similar to our comparison actually with Texas. So Texas has been following the national average as well. California's seen faster improvements in English. We've closed the gap um, with the rest of the nation by about half or three-quarters depending on how you measure it in English. um, In terms of math we've seen roughly similar growth or trends over the past 15 years. I mean one thing that we have seen in California and the rest of the nation is that there was pretty robust improvement up till around 2011 and then scores have kind of stagnated since then.
1: That was in math? And that's
0: in math, in yeah. In math specifically.
1: Uh, but it sounds generally, I'm hearing a lot of good news here. I'm moving in the right direction, but let me ask you, how much of these improvements uh, in student achievement you think are the result of these educational reforms like the Local Control Funding
0: Formula or the Common Core? You know, I think since these improvements have been going on for a long time, we can't just pinpoint it to one reform. We've had lots of reforms over the past decade and a half. Um, I think in, the, in terms of LCFF, the jury's still out on that because that's a relatively new reform, and a lot of the money is just now being so spent. So when
1: you're saying new, it's, it's been around, but it, the money is now it's now fully so it's, funded. It's
0: been around for about six years, but the full of funding has okay. only come in the past two or three years. Okay. Um, and Common Core. And so Common Core, I think you know the evidence that actually the stagnation in scores since 2011 has been suggested by some as a potential growing pain of Common Core, especially in math. I think anecdotally, there are a lot of critiques over the Common Core math curriculum, that it was mm-hmm. difficult for teachers, that it was difficult for students. In, in many ways, I think that's, you know that's an oversimplification when we look at these math results, in part because this, this stagnation actually started before most districts and states had really implemented Common Core. Um, so that may be part of it, but there's mm-hmm. also more going on there and there's more to that story.
1: It would seem to be a more of a, there's a bit of a shakeout period I
0: would think, just to kind of get used to the, the new system. I think that's true Core. with any sort of fundamental shift, it's it, there are going to be some growing pains. So necessary. overall
1: right. you know, what do you think uh, about California? Are we going in the right direction? I
0: obviously? think we're headed in the right direction overall. I think you know the concerns you brought up earlier are still valid. We still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, this improvement is coming off of a low base. We still have a lot of students who aren't at grade level and still there are still hundreds of thousands of students that are far below grade level. So we have a lot of work to do. These achievement gaps are large, but we've made progress over the past four years and we've made progress, you know, in looking at the NAEP over the past 15 years. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because even small gains compounded over time, 1% a year can add up to a lot. You're talking about potentially over a decade, millions more students who are reaching grade level. And it's I the think compounding th- effect, right? Exactly. It's, like, it's like
1: investing. It's like you only make seven percent, but that adds up over time.
0: Yeah. On the flip side, you're also talking about millions of students who aren't reaching their full potential, and right. I think that's what's important to keep in mind. Well,
1: California also has a very unique demographic mix, too. It's, it's a, a wide range uh, of students. Uh, what about just focusing? I only have about five seconds left, but focusing on school districts that are particularly successful, um, is that something that people are now kind of focusing on, those, those high-need
0: districts that are actually showing real improvement? I think that's something that people want to do more of and I think with better data actually that's, that's coming or in the works I think it will enable us to make those comparisons with more certainty. Yeah. More
1: research which is, which is something that's good and hopefully you'll be doing it, Julian. That's good um, for me. But, <laughs> that's yeah. right. Julian LaFortune with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, thank you very much for joining us. Despite a strong economy, California has among the highest poverty rates and greatest income inequality in the nation. Can a college degree reduce poverty and close that uh, income gap? Our guest is Sarah Bone, who is the Director of Research and Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, and she's looked at these very questions. So welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So um, how essential is a college degree for economic mobility? Is college worth it?
2: College, the value of a college degree is at almost an all-time high in the data that we are looking at. Um, A college graduate in California earns on average $80,000. Compare that to somebody with a high school diploma earning about $36,000 a year on average. Um, so really the value of a college degree is, ha- is hard to overstate.
1: You know, one of the things I, I was looking at your research which I thought was really interesting was that how the uh, earning potential of parents versus their kids has changed over time. And your statistics indicate that in the 40s, um, uh, uh, those born in the 40s, only 49, I'm sorry, 89 oh, percent did better than their parents. Today, 49 percent. That's right. Wow. I mean, it's, that's pretty startling to, to all those of us who have children want them to do better than we did. Um, So the benefits of college will go beyond simply
2: wages. What are some of the other benefits? In addition to earning higher wages, college graduates are more likely to find a job, to remain employed, especially that's true in recessions, um, which I think is really important for us to remember in California. Um, At the same time, college graduates tend to have jobs that offer other benefits like health insurance, um, paid vacation time. Um, retirement plans and that sort of thing—all thing all of these things help with kind of economic well-being, well-being and mobility over time.
1: Yeah, I, I remember. That I'm going way back when I was in grad school. There was something called the dual labor market theory, and they talked about you know the labor market isn't just one thing. It's two things. It's the kind of the skilled workers. They have one labor market, hmm. and the unskilled have a different labor market. And so you want to be on the right side of that, and college helps that. So let's talk about um, the equity gap. Um, does College help kind of close that? And does it depend where you go to school, whether it's a UC or a CSU or a private school?
2: Yeah, there's a big gap across groups. Um, students who come from low-income backgrounds, who are from minority um, uh, demographics, tend to have lower kind of college attainment rates. Um, and it really starts in high school or even earlier, um, where they kind of start we start seeing these equity gaps, and they just persist throughout kind of the pipeline to college degree. Um, But graduation rates at the UCs Mm -hmm. are much higher, or really the highest across our public institutions. CSU is a little bit behind that and community colleges behind that still. Mm -hmm. And those equity gaps kind of go hand in hand with that. So it really does matter where you start in college. Well, let me me kind of go back a little bit on on those questions. So most Californians, 66 percent, don't have a college
1: degree. Uh, Particularly true among certain socioeconomic and demographic groups. Um, that represent a majority of California high school students. So why do they have much lower uh, college enrollment rates than their peers?
2: I think you know there's a lot of potential answers to that, and we don't know fully. One. Um, leading explanation is just differences in information, so understanding what is required um, to be able to enter college, um, and then information about financial aid, which is really critical, especially for our students from low-income families, to understand what's available to them um, through state programs or college programs that can assist with the cost of college, which is a big hurdle to a lot of families Yeah, today. it's
1: also, too, if, if your parents have not gone to college, they can't help you navigate the system, right? It's, it's, just, it's challenging. That's right. first generation. There's
2: a big gap between students um, uh, just in terms of um, the background of their parents. And one of the
1: things you see a lot, I mean, CSU certainly talk about this in particular, is how much they affect economic mobility of these first generation. They have a lot of first generation students right. um, that are going through the system that it really helps. Um, you've noted in your research that more students are eligible for college, but an equity gap remains. What are the numbers in terms of high school graduation rates, college preparation, those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, one of the striking numbers in my mind is um, the, the gap between students with different um, income backgrounds. So, 67% of recent high school graduates from low income families go to college. That actually sounds reasonably high mm-hmm. uh, to me, but when you compare that to students from high income families, 88% of them go on to college. So, there's a real divide there um, just according to kind of the economic standing of your family. So,
1: you were talking about some of the actions that are needed to help. To kind of improve the situation, so what are some of the things you think need to be
2: done? So we talked about information, just in uh, in terms of requirements to get into college, and also information about financial aid. I think there's more that we could do um, from a policy perspective, and uh, individual colleges could do on the financial aid front because tuition is is now just a half or so of the cost of college, right. um, housing, and all of that adds a lot to the burden um, that that students and families face. I, w- I would add that you know colleges in California have. Improved in graduation rates and closing equity gaps a little bit over the past ten years, and so there's a lot of promising strategies um, that we can build on, uh, and and I think that's that's good for our state. We actually you know do pretty well compared to other um, state colleges and elite colleges in enrolling a demographically mixed um, student body.
1: Okay, up next we're going to talk about access to higher education in California. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. The Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California projects that by 2030, the state's going to have a shortfall of over a million college grads, if things don't change. The good news is the gap is closing. The bad news, according to our guests, Patrick Murphy and Radhika Milotra with the PPIC, is that the state's historical underinvestment in maintenance of its four-year public universities will impede efforts to close that gap. So welcome to the Matty Report. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, we'll start with you first. From what I've read, there's been kind of a multi-pronged approach to help increase access uh, to four-year colleges, even to your colleges. What's been the
3: effect? Um, the effect, as you as you say, is more good news. Um, we've got it coming from two directions. We've got the high school students with more of them being prepared, completing the requirements they need to be accepted, and then we also have it from the community colleges that are sort of streamlining and starting to prepare what what we think of it will be a wave of transfers being ready to go to either the CSU or UC campus.
1: Which is is pretty important. I mean, that's an important track. It's it's amazing to me that a lot of the, at least in the past, they haven't coordinated the community college to the four year jump and they're seeing there's real value there.
3: Right. And with that too is that we're getting a lot of students who in the past, at least in terms of of, uh, uh, economic circumstances, wouldn't necessarily be getting prepared or wouldn't necessarily being there, so we're closing that gap a little bit too, which is a real big part of it.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, Rocky, let me ask you this. Uh, A big part of the problem has been the declining investments in in campus campus infrastructure. Can you explain the magnitude of the problem?
4: Yeah, so in 2005, state capital appropriations for uh, full-time students, were about 1,100 per student, um, and if we fast-forward that to 10 years, so in 2015, that number fell to 59 dollars per student.
3: 59 dollars? Wow.
4: Um, and around 2008, it peaked at 1,800, but we haven't really recovered from the recession wow. in terms of capital dollars. That's
1: a big hit. I, it's interesting, you know, infrastructure. When you think about it, a lot of donors who want to give money, they don't want to give it to pipes, or right. they, they want to give it to a building, <laughs> or, you know, and, right. but that's the stuff that needs to be maintained.
3: Right. You can't uh, see that little brass plaque next to the <laughs> right, heating unit. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah,
1: right. Um, so Patrick, let me ask you this. Um, so you report, uh, there's a report that you have that notes that reduced state controls and legislative oversight has meant that these infrastructure decisions are increasingly being made at the local campus level. Um, and they that may not align with state goals and needs. So what's the right balance between you know, central
3: control versus maybe you know, local control. And the, the, the trade-off is in some ways this idea of a statewide oversight. Um, we would like to see the campuses increase their capacity to have more students on the campus. And yet at the campus level, we do want to have them to be able to take stock of their situation and figure out what their first need is. And somewhere in there, there needs to be a balance. The systems are starting to play more of a role. Um, we would like to see perhaps a, a little bit more transparency in yeah, how that and happens. Yeah, one of the issues,
1: and sometimes you do it at a local level, that people may not know what's going mm-hmm. on and, and maybe you need a little bit more uh, transparency. Though I would assume if I was a college president, I'd want to have control of what was going on on my campus, right? Um, And then they would argue who would know more than what them locally, what's what's going on. Exactly. Ronick, let me ask you uh, in your report, you state that there are different implications for the UC, the CSU, and California Community Colleges. Can you explain the differences?
4: Sure. Um, So, in terms of the UC, um, we're seeing that administrators, because of the decentralized process and the declining in state investment, we're seeing that administrators are having to create capital plans that meet campus needs, but also ones that can be financed, which means that they're relying increasingly on external financing sources. So right. whether that's philanthropy or public-private partnerships. Um, so but UCs
1: can do that, right? Because UCs have, that's you know, right. I don't want to invest in UCLA or, or, or UC Berkeley. but That's right. Okay. So and the
4: concern there is that the incentives that those funding sources create may not necessarily run, you know, parallel to what the state Right. Or, um, the system's um, goals are.
1: So then we turn to CSU. What about the They Have a lot of students in the CSU. Um, right. How are they doing in terms of, uh, you know, infrastructure and, and financing this stuff? And
4: they have the same challenges that the UC does, but that they're persistently underinvested in in right. terms of. Across the board, but especially in capital. Um, so what that means is that they just don't have the resources, the philanthropy resources, like right. You said, they, and one thing I have
1: noticed is that Cal states have gotten much more aggressive in philanthropy, but it's it's still it's an uphill climb because everybody's That's asking right. for dollars. What about the community colleges?
4: Well, they've always had a decentralized process. That decisions are made at the local level. They can tax and borrow. They're
1: a lot like K12, decisions. right? Exactly. And so they have a 55 percent approval rate to get something passed for money. And so it's a it's a different financial model. That's right. So so Patrick, what does this all mean? I mean, what what, do you, what can what What
3: conclusions you draw? Um, The fact is that we have not been investing to the extent that we have. If we want to have more spaces for students, we're going to have to create more spaces for students, which probably means investing in not only to catch up on the deferred maintenance, but actually building some more bricks and mortar buildings so students can attend classrooms, live on campus, etc.
1: Okay. Well, I want to thank very much Patrick Murphy from PPIC and Radhika Malotra uh, as well. Up next, uh, we're going to talk about an innovative approach at the UC's newest campus, UC Merced, with the chancellor of that campus, Dorothy Leland. That conversation in a moment. This is Mark Kepler with the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. UC Merced, opening in 2005, was the first American student-centered research university built in the 21st century, right here in the valley. Its third chancellor, Dorothy Leland, is our guest. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Thank you. So can you tell our audience a little bit about the history and mission of UC Merced?
5: Sure. We were um, built uh, to provide uh, access, uh, to more access to uh, students in the entire state of California, but particularly the uh, San Joaquin Valley to the University of California. As you know, the valley is blessed with wonderful uh, community colleges and um, a California State University campuses but it did not have the University of California campus. Right,
1: that was the missing link. I mean if th- yeah. students in the Valley wanted to go to a University of California they had to leave and now, now they don't. That's right. Um, so let me ask you about uh, kind of the socioeconomic and demographic backgrounds of your students. Sure. Uh, how do they compare to other UC campuses?
5: Um, we're, we are by far the most diverse of all the UC campuses and um, our students uh, pr- predominantly come from underrepresented minorities Um, and from low-income and first-generation families. So to give you an idea of what that means, um, in number, 73% of our students are first-generation, 64% are uh, uh, Pell recipients, and We'd have even more Pell recipients if our over 600 undocumented students were eligible for federal financial aid.
1: That's amazing. And I was looking at some of the statistics on your university, and high percentage of Hispanic students, almost 55 percent Hispanic, which is very high. Um, you, you do a good job of attracting people throughout the state. Actually, mm-hmm. I mean, you do have a large representation from the valley, about a quarter of your students, but you're attracting students from San Francisco and, and Los Angeles, et cetera. Right. So, so a big, a big draw. Um, So let me ask you this, Uh, the impact of obtaining a degree from UC Merced, I'm wondering what impact it has on the economic and social mobility of your students. I mean, I would think it'd be substantial.
5: Yeah, if you look at national data on the impact of of a degree in general, a bachelor's degree in general, um, you you can expect over uh, double a lifetime increase in your lifetime income. University of California is even higher. So do we have a lot of data on that yet? No, you know mm-hmm. we barely have an alum now who's thirty. Right, but, you're,
1: you know, you're fairly but, yeah new college.
5: But um, but we do know our students are getting good jobs in diverse industries that they um, uh, have low levels of debt, um, and so they're doing well.
1: But you're also, I mean, you're graduating students. I mean, they're, they're coming there. One of the problems is they, they come to college and they drop out. That's not happening at UC Merced. No. You've got a very good graduation rate. Yeah, um, I think it was something like when I was reading, sixteen percent higher than the rate predicted by U.S. News and World Report. That's right. And that puts you in, what, the top two? Per,
5: number two. Number, two in, number the, two in the nation. Wow. And we are the only research university in the nation that has over 60% of our students as Pell recipients and has over 60% of those students graduate.
1: So you're putting you're surrounding them with programs to make sure yeah. that they're successful That's throughout right. the college group. These
5: are uh, amazingly talented students, and um, they are hard workers and creative, but they haven't always had all of the advantages that um, they need to be successful in college, so we have a lot of programs in place that are meant to help close that gap.
1: And that's incredibly helpful. I'm a first generation college student, and I have a graduate degree and a law degree, because my parents always pushed education. But boy, I tell you, when I went to college, I had no idea what I was getting into. I was
5: also first generation. What's the syllabus? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know? What am I supposed to do with this thing? Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, it, people don't realize when, you, when you, your parents can't assist you in that and yeah. you're coming from an area maybe that doesn't have yeah. a lot of folks that go to college, it's, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. It's a, it's a big leap. The other thing I wanted to mention here was you actually have been rated um, by Washington Monthly. Uh, in 2018, you are ranked number 14th in the, in the nation on social mobility. Yeah. So if, if your target is to get these kids to move up socially and economically, it seems like you're doing that, so that's great. But let me ask you this, so what, are, what would you say are the greatest accomplishments of UC Merced up to this point?
5: Well, you just named some of them. I mean, the, the remarkable success of our students, I think over time will um, change the, the perception of the nation, that students like ours can be successful in a high-powered research university environment and be uh, an amazing uh, talent pipeline for the state of California and beyond. That is a success success story. We're attracting amazingly talented faculty from the best research universities in the country and sometimes internationally. Most of them are young, but as their research matures, you're going to hear more and more about them. And one day we will have our first Nobel Prize winner. Um, Okay. And uh, (laughs) so, and, and I think the fact that you know, we started up in a very difficult environment. the The doors of the uh, campus were opened about uh, 14 years ago, and then a great recession. We got a great recession, so yeah. Hit, and we, the the state, lost its ability to to fund academic and re- the construction of academic and research buildings, and so we were, you know, we were able to to create a way to continue to make the campus grow and thrive in a very difficult environment.
1: And we're going to talk more about that in a moment with UC Merced Chancellor Dorothy Leland. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with UC Merced Chancellor Dorothy Leland uh, about some of the things happening uh, on that campus. Uh, one of the things that's happening is a major expansion. Um, you're going to basically be moving to 10,000 students, and you're going to get there by a $1.3 billion investment by the University of California and this unique uh, public-private partnership you've got going on. A lot of people say this is going to be the model going forward for other universities. What's happening at UC Merced?
5: Well, it's amazing. If you go out there, um, you can see a campus that in a period of three and a half years will actually double its physical capacity Mm -hmm. with every kind of building that you see in a college campus. It is um, jointly financed through... By the way, it is a
1: beautiful campus. It is. It is in a great state. It
5: is. And and, uh, you'll be amazed. I invite everybody who's listening to come see what's happening there. So it's a a partnership between the University of California and a a private developer who has considerable financial um, stake in this project as well. And it um, has allowed us to... um, It's just not
1: one building. You're using this partnership for... Parking lots. I mean, it's it's everything. Everything.
5: So it's everything you need on a college campus, from roadways, parking lots, research buildings, residence uh-huh. halls, dining halls, recreational facilities, health facilities. So,
1: so people are looking at this UC Merced model, and, and yeah. uh, people are saying maybe this is something we need to replicate. I want what? to ask. I'm sorry. I want to ask a question though, about sure. about infrastructure because we had a discussion in the earlier segment about where should these decisions be made. You know state has a goal of of graduating more college students. Should these infrastructure decisions be made at the state level, um, kind of a central plan or something, uh, for lack of a better term, or should they be made at the local level or, or some combination?
5: I, I think um, I don't know if we need uh, additional bureaucracy.
1: Mm-hmm. I
5: think um, we need good communication channels, and we need to make sure that capital projects align with state needs and state goals.
1: You know, there was a there was an organization called the California Postsecondary Education Commission. That was shut down by Governor Brown as a cost-saving move in 2011, and Governor Newsom is talking about possibly bringing something like that back. Um, would you? Would that help in terms of the coordination?
5: It, it could. It, you know, let's see what the shape and form and model of it is. Um, and um, but meanwhile, I think that in certain sectors of the state, there's strong coordination. As you know, right here in the Valley, that. The, um, the community colleges, the CSUs, and the UC, as well as some of our, our private school sectors, communicate regularly. We have an association. We have common goals. We work together. And so, smoothing
1: that transition from community college to, to, yeah. to Cal State or to, or to UC is really important. It then shortens the time a student, it takes a student to, to graduate.
5: It does. It does. Yeah,
1: it makes a big difference. Now, I wanted to ask you about some of the things you know in the future. What do you what do you think are going to be kind of the future projects and programs? Um, and I'd like you to talk about that. But I'd also like you to talk about this Valley to Valley initiative that uh-huh. you're involved with. So,
5: well, you know, uh, the future is uh, first to get to ten thousand students, and then we're and pl- where are you now? You're about we're uh, uh, a little under eight thousand. Okay, and um, we're. Uh, uh, at the beginning stage of looking at our next long-range development plan, and so... Uh, but
1: your full build-out, I read, was, uh, tw- twenty, uh, I think, 25,000 students 25, in 30 years. Yeah. So it's basically the same size as Fresno State.
5: Yeah, it's it's a pretty aggressive plan.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. so so that's the, the initial thing that you're working on, but what about this Valley to Valley initiative?
5: Well, I, you know, I've been a part of that um, since its beginning, and this Valley Valley initiative is about... Um, connecting the talent and the resources that are in the San Joaquin Valley with the talent and resources that are in the uh, greater uh, San Francisco Bay Area. It is um, something that I think um, will have some tremendous uh, benefits for the valley, economic and educational and other benefits from the valley and I'm really pleased to see leaders from um, all areas of the San Joaquin Valley and the greater San Francisco Bay Area really focuses well, on the, the Silicon the Valley connection.
1: The Silicon Valley is very interested, and yes. it's interesting. You know, people look, look at what's happening with the ACE train yes. that's coming down to Merced um, that goes to San Jose, goes to yep. Silicon Valley. Then you think about high-speed rail. They build that uh, from Bakersfield to Merced. All of a sudden, Merced becomes kind of a, a focal point of going either to the Bay Area or going to Sacramento, with the University of California. That that could be really significant. It's
5: it. it, it UC Merced, uh, Merced could be the transportation hub that makes that connection possible. And um, it could be, bring tremendous economic development to the community and the broader region. And um, I really look forward to um, continuing to work on this with all of our partners. That's
1: very exciting. I want to thank UC thank Merced, you. Chancellor Dorothy Leland for being with us. Also Sarah Bone and Patrick Murphy with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Maddie Report, visit our website at mattyinstitute.org. The
0: Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.